Hey everyone, welcome to the Doctors Podcast with Travis Stork. I decided this weekend that there's more I wanted to talk about, and I've just had so many conversations with various friends and emergency doctors that I'm friends with around the country. And last night I was talking to my roommate during residency at Vanderbilt Medical Center, Dr. Jeff Hayden, who is also one of my best friends in the world. And we were just talking about all of this coronavirus madness. Should we be more scared, less scared? And the reason I was so intrigued talking to Jeff is, number one, he's a really, really smart doctor. Uh, number two, his dad, Dr. Frederick Hayden, is a virologist. So he is someone that I met way back in the day when I was at the University of Virginia, where both Jeff and I went to medical school. And then Jeff and I ended up going to Vanderbilt, where we both just by the luck of the draw trained in emergency medicine and were roommates. Well, Dr. Fred Hayden is a clinical virologist and also a consultant to the World Health Organization in all matters virology and is on the front lines right now with coronavirus and trying to figure out what treatments may be effective. And uh, it's just fascinating. And last night, Jeff and I were talking and Jeff was talking about how his dad really had made him aware of how serious this situation can become and I was hoping to call Jeff up and, and have my concerns allayed. But if anything, it made me even more conscientious towards educating folks as best I can. At this point, this podcast, again, it's nothing but my thoughts, uh, Dr. Jeff Hayden's thoughts and opinions, because nobody knows what's going to happen right now. And my mindset is I'm stuck between this, this thought that, you know what? there is hysteria out there and and there's probably too much of that the what people are saying on one hand where oh it's fine everyone's going to be fine the the good thing about reminding people of that is that if you get coronavirus by and large you are going to do well how however um the reason i've been just fired up this weekend is that because i think a lot of people still think this is a joke in some ways. And that, and that concerns me. And I don't blame people because based on what they've heard, I can understand why you might think that if you haven't been watching the 24 seven news cycle, which at times can be overwhelming psychologically. Um, this is a time where we all need to educate ourselves. And I, I think so much is changing that just spending a little bit of time every day, hearing or reading about what the latest is just so that if you become concerned or you think you may have been infected, you know, the resources in your community, you know, nationally what's going on. But as far as the virus itself and how this is going to look a week or two weeks from now, I really want people to start thinking of this as a longer term issue where it's not as though school's closed for two weeks and we stop the NBA and NHL and, Disney World is closed. It's not like that happens and then in two weeks, everything is going to go back to normal. That will not happen. This is really all about right now, as far as I can tell, slowing the spread of this virus so that we can be prepared over the coming month if we see a huge spike in cases two, three, four weeks from now. So we are delaying the spread by socially 
keeping some distance so that everything else can ramp up. First testing. And, and I'm encouraged that finally it feels like over the next week or so it will be available. I love the fact that we're going to hopefully have more mobile testing. That's a great thing. But then testing is one thing. Testing, you need to test because you need to know what you're treating. But testing does not offer any solutions to the problem of the pandemic. It just helps us. It does offer solutions in that if you know you're positive, and you're having mild little symptoms, you can just self-isolate. But it doesn't, if you're really, really sick, you still need treatment. And a test does not provide treatment. It only provides a diagnosis. So where are we at in terms of preparing our hospitals for surge capacity? And, and my mindset is we're, we're, not, we're not nearly where we need to be just in case. Um, I use the analogy in this podcast during my conversation with Jeff. It's a little bit like when you get a car, you might choose to get a four-wheel drive in case you're someone who drives in a lot of snow and you may have that car for five years and you decide to trade it in and you may have never gotten an accident. And you may think, wow, why did I, why did I spend ahead of time on the four wheel drive? I never, never had an accident. Or you might think, wow, I'm glad I bought that four wheel drive because there were some rough situations there. And twice that four wheel drive prevented me from driving off a cliff. And as a guy who lived in, in Colorado for many years, I know that four-wheel drive saved my butt a bunch of times. Um, and I think of, of, again, probably a terrible analogy, but it's a little bit like right now we're, we're spending a little extra money and effort to put some four-wheel drive mechanics on our response to this, this virus outbreak because it could get real slippery out there. It could get a little bit hairy we could come really close to a cliff and we're going to be really happy if that happens, that we have the four wheel drive. Now, hopefully it's just sunny, smooth, dry roads out there, so to speak with this analogy. But again, if the storm hits and we're driving on some sketchy roads, we're going to be really happy that we have that four wheel drive and we had the foresight to put all these things into place and time will tell. Uh, but again, right now, what you're about to hear is the kind of conversation that I was having with my buddy Jeff and I just I just literally stopped it and I said Jeff just let's stop having this conversation let's talk again tomorrow and let's share it and let's make it a podcast and people can get some insight into to what you're thinking and what I'm thinking and that doesn't matter it's just two people's thoughts but it at least gives you the perspective that a lot of people in the medical community do have uh Jeff's dad is is um is also an incredibly useful resource. And he's so busy right now with his response that, uh, quite honestly, I, I felt guilty asking him to spend an hour of his time. So uh, Jeff and I, Jeff literally is in contact with his dad all the time. And even offline, Jeff is able to share some updates with me that uh, although not necessarily known facts, at least give me some insight into where this thing might be headed. I, I hope you enjoy this podcast and understand this. I get fired up at times. It's just in my personality. I get frustrated when I don't think that everything's going great. And I also get a little frustrated when I think that people aren't taking something seriously that they should. But I don't blame anyone for that at all. If, if again, if I go outside right now on a bike ride, it feels like business as usual. Life is normal. Um, but it, I would just remind everyone that don't mistake 
things, even though right now restaurants are still open in most communities in America, there's a reason why, again, you're not going to a concert. You're not going to a basketball game or a hockey game. You're not going to Disney World. You're not, you're not doing a lot of the things you would normally do. And the reason is because a lot of smart people across this globe realize the potential for what this could become. And we need to prevent that from happening as best we can. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So what do you want to talk about, brother? Dude, I got, I got all sorts of things. Cause I, no, no. And that's, and that's what, um, struck me. I've been doing so much reading. I've, I probably watched too many different perspectives on this too. And that article you sent me, that was one of the more fascinating ones. I showed that to Paris as well because she's obviously scared with the impending pregnancy and looking like all the spikes might occur right while right when um, the baby boy is born. So she's thinking, "Oh my gosh, are you going to going to have to deliver at home?" Because if hospitals are at surge capacity, come late May, June, <laughs> is there going to be a hospital bed for me to deliver the baby? And I I, I told her that. It all depends on how things play out right now. And I th- thought that graph was like, that was really telling in terms of using mitigation efforts and social distancing. And of course, while after you sent that to me and I was reading it, I literally am getting texts from people seeing if I want to go hang out with them who aren't really paying attention. And hey, I'm dropping my kids off with their friends. Do you want to, you know, do you want to then go hang out? And I'm sitting here thinking, does, do you think they closed schools because they want kids to be together? I, I'm confused. Right. I know. I'm, I'm wondering the same thing. It's, I will say that if you look at the literature coming out of China, kids, although they, of course, get infected like all the rest of us, tend not to have quite the same severe course that those who have risk factors, older adults and that sort of thing. But it doesn't change the fact that they are a vector of disease and that well, social distancing at every level makes sense. Well, it makes kids potentially the, and when I say kids, I'm going to talk about big kids too. Kids who are now out of school, who would be in college, who now, quite frankly, in Nashville and elsewhere, they're now out at, out at bars. And I think we may find soon that these individuals who show the fewest symptoms are the greatest vectors, the the greatest carriers of the virus because they, they don't feel that bad. They're out either playing with friends or out at bars. I don't know how it is in Philadelphia, but people are still going out in a big way. And so Disney world may be shut down, but the bars are still open and people are partying and just acting like, because you can't see this virus that it's not a not a threat and it's it's hard to watch only because you think about it you know folks with let's say a disease like hypertension you don't feel it for a good period of time and we're still telling them you got to take your medication because years down the road there could be implications from this but trying to make sure a patient's compliant taking that medication extraordinarily difficult right now we have a group of people that aren't infected or they have very little in terms of symptoms. And so telling them to stay home and quarantine themselves, in their minds, that doesn't make sense because they feel great, all right? And then the second aspect of this is that there's a lot of mixed messaging. 
you know, depending on your media source, some are saying absolutely social distancing, quarantine yourself. Other folks say, hey, this is just typical seasonal flu, no big deal. And, and that's a false message and it's dangerous. Well, some of the messaging that's been problematic is um, someone took an emergency medicine doctor's comment out of context where he said, quote unquote, 98 to 99% of people will be fine. So people have taken that and run with it and started posting it, pushing on social media. Well, 98 to 99% of people will survive, but even of that 98 to 99%, could it be that 20% of those individuals have a rough course, maybe get pneumonia? And, you know, I'm saying this because you, you told me that there, that you personally, because there are certain areas of the country still where ER doctors aren't seeing a lot of positives. There are still certain countries where, or certain counties and cities where tests can't be done. But I, I talked in my last podcast that a lot of people, the majority of people might have just mild or moderate symptoms, but the fact is there, and what I've read is up to 20% of people might end up with a pneumonia. And yes, those people with pneumonia, they may not all die, but that to me is not being fine. So if we call it, if, if you're going to say 98 to 99% survival rate, which it could be higher. We don't know. We don't know this. It could be 90. It could end up being 99.9%. We, cause truth is we don't know how many people have actually been infected, but I'm finding so many people, they're self-justifying this as an overreaction precisely because you know what? Most of us will be fine. I'm curious in Philly where you practice is, is the mindset to take this more seriously because quite frankly, you read the other data and lower humidity, colder climates, it seems to be doing a little bit better job of infecting people than let's say in a, a hotter, humid climate where people are, you know, they're already outside, out and about, sunny, spring is here. Yeah. So Philadelphia is is steadily, you know, taking this very seriously in terms of terms of closures, but Montgomery County closed all the school districts. Uh, kids have been home since last week. We're limiting their contact with, uh, with other kids. But, you know, let me give you an example. I, I, we were getting a little cabin fever here. Uh, my wife has been doing a lot of the, the heavy lifting. And so I decided to take the kids to, uh, to one of the, the local, uh, you know, hikes uh, in the Wissahickon. And, and we were keeping our distance. It was just three of us. And kids, of course, were convinced that they were going to find treasures everywhere. And we're digging in the, the dirt and throwing rocks around. And, uh, and I figured, you know, we'd see occasional passersby, but, uh, but as you can imagine, everybody wants to be outside. So this is not a, a going to the bar situation, but, you know, midway through our hike, a horde of at least 60 to 70 runners comes by and, uh, and, you know, we're moving to the side as, as they're huffing and puffing and coughing. And, uh, and as we wrapped up our hike, they were all congregated at the, the end of the, the, the hike and, uh, we're chatting amongst each other and, Boy, they're staying healthy, and I, I can certainly applaud that. But they're doing the opposite of what I'm telling my patients to do. When you're when you're breathing heavily and you're coughing, I mean, you're just asking to to spread a disease around. Your communicability is at its highest in in the midst of this, and and so there's all sorts of social activities that might, on the face, seem reasonably healthy that are still putting you and putting others at risk. And we've just got to kind of change our mindset about this. Yes, go outside, but don't oh. go outside with 50, 60 people. 
Well, and that's a great point because people should get outside. In fact, I think this whole concept of social distancing could allow us to gauge in a little more vitamin N, vitamin nature, because that's a great place to be. The trees and the trails, there's no virus there. And unless you're running with, in this case, 60 or 70 other people, and then afterwards you're sweating, you're coughing, you, you know, maybe you're sharing beverages. That's why anyone listening, that's why they canceled the NBA basketball season, because it doesn't take long to realize that once the first player, um, Rudy Jobert, was tested positive, then Donovan Mitchell, both of the Utah Jazz, then they find out a team they played, someone tested positive. These are guys whose interactions, probably just on a basketball court, you know, they're just in a, the normal spacing of a game and they're passing it to one another, feeling relatively fine. The same is true out and about. But if one of the things I've been doing, I'm going out on bike rides and it's giving me an opportunity to get a sense for what people are doing because on a bike, I can cover a fair amount of ground. And I love it when I see families out walking with their kids. It's a way to de- decrease cabin fever. But then I'll be biking and I will see groups of like you. I haven't seen 60 to 70 people, but I see groups of 20 to 30 people, which to me, that's too much. (laughs) Social distancing doesn't mean you can never, ever see someone else. But if we then hang out in a group of 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people, then you go home you're not, and then everyone at your house is potentially exposed. I think people have to realize that these these numbers, they increase the the I should say the odds of you getting affected, infected increase every single time you're in a big social gathering. And every time it adds up, and based on the curves, it's going to add up quickly. Right. And but I also want to emphasize something. This is not to point fingers and to chastise people for making bad decisions. Like, I get it. You know, there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, you need an outlet for that. And a lot of these activities are, are seemingly helpful and healthful. But the reality is that the more folks that you're around, uh, the more that you're coughing, the more that you're breathing heavily, uh, the likely you are to spread, spread disease. Um, but Absolutely. I, I totally get it. And I'm, I'm trying to get away from this notion of, of social distancing because, you know, there's a lot of ways to be social. And, and, you know, we're doing one of those versions right now. There's social, social virtual, you know, enhancements. Like you can, you can be social virtually and, uh, and really crank that up while you're just not spending face-to-face time with all the, the friends and the loved ones. And so, so I think there's a lot of opportunities here to sort of tweak it a little bit in terms of how you're going to get your social engagement. It just needs to be maybe a bit more virtual. Well, true story. Jeff and I, we hung out in New York City when I was last out there. What was that? Maybe a month ago? About a month ago, right? And interestingly, two points there. Number one, Coronavirus was just beginning to become a word that people in America knew of, and things were starting to get really scary in China. But secondly, the only reason you and I realistically are looking face-to-face via computer right now is because of the coronavirus, meaning in some ways this is an opportunity if if your um, schedule has changed and you're not going out to dinners as much, you know what, call your Call a friend, call call a loved one, FaceTime, Skype, whatever it may be. And you actually may find that you interact more with those people that you want and choose to interact with. So I, 
I have to ask you this because your dad is a world-renowned virologist and he's also um, much smarter than most people. Um, he is truly an academic and I, I venture to say the word, he is a virus nerd. Is that fair to say? Oh, in the best of ways, he is a total virus nerd. And he is, he is studied. Since I was born, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that I've been his guinea pig for testing. Uh, he has been inoculating me with rhinovirus and influenza. And, uh, and this is, uh, this is one of those bugs that, that has my dad's head spinning right now. He is, you know, I rarely get super nervous about things. Uh, as an ER doc, we see a lot of craziness and, uh, and, and usually, you know, there's, there's a good story behind it or a good, a good treatment that you can, uh, implement. But this is one of the times where, uh, my own father's kind of freaked me out because early on he recognized that this was a bug that was going to spread fast, that the majority of people were going to do okay with it, but the minority of people were really going to suffer. What's your dad's stance on where we're at now, where we're going, and the potential for mitigating treatments sooner rather than later? Other than obvious treatments, like if you have severe pneumonia and you need to be intubated, do we have enough uh, respirators to do that? Other types of treatments that may minimize symptoms in those who are maybe the 10, 20% who are developing things like pneumonia. Right. Yeah. The, the mainstay treatment right now is supportive. Uh, we already know that from from reading about it in the media. You know, the treatment of choice is is oxygen. Uh, that's what people need typically when they're coming in an extremis when they're real sick. They are being given oxygen, either in the form of oxygen through the nose, through a mask, or via a ventilator. So that's the the mainstay of treatment in terms of antivirals. Right now, uh, nothing exists definitively. You know he's he's always optimistic, uh, and and you know I'm I'm looking forward to some really smart people coming up with some effective therapies, um, including eventually a vaccine for this. Right. So long term and months and maybe a year plus. And so what's interesting for people who haven't nerded out to read the statistics. You know, there is a chance that with warmer weather things could ebb a little bit after it gets. It's going to get worse first, but that doesn't mean that it wouldn't come back in the fall. And it doesn't mean that this coronavirus isn't around to stay. So my question for you twofold, um, based on all the conversations that you've had with your dad and where these clinical trials are taking place, how far off might we be from A, a mitigating treatment versus B, something that is more vaccine-like that could prevent this from becoming one of the scariest pathogens since the Spanish flu? <laughs> An impossible question to answer. You know, it comes down to picking the right drug that has some really good results in clinical trials. And you better believe since it's an international response, they would be spinning that drug out very, very quickly uh, if it was proven to be effective and safe. But again, as of now, nothing, nothing has sort of risen to the top. Uh, but they're looking, they're looking. And, and that's one of the things that I do trust in is the research establishment. They're taking this extraordinarily seriously. They realize that this is something that we just need to do and we need to, we need to aggressively approach. 
uh, and they're setting up all the clinical trials in order to assess for it. So I don't know what comes first, a vaccine versus an effective therapy after you've already become infected. Um, hopefully, both will come very, very soon. Uh, if I had to wager a guess, I would say the the actual the treatments may come before the vaccine, but you never quite know. And everybody needs to keep in mind also that you know coronavirus that exists. You know there are human coronaviruses that we see every season. You know and and they typically cause the the mild cold symptoms. And uh, the difference here is that this may involve some mild cold symptoms, but it also is causing very 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 severe illness. And there's, it's a good reason that it's, it's named after the SARS-CoV. Uh, it's, this is now the SARS-CoV-2. And uh, it's because it, it does cause that very severe respiratory illness. And so that's what and, people need to kind of be aware of. Well, and I describe to people what happens when a virus infects you. And if you all think of a coronavirus that causes cold-like symptoms or any of the many other viruses that cause the common cold, they tend to congregate in the upper respiratory tract, cause the annoying congestion, runny nose, sore throat. A lot of the cough that you get with a common cold is due to post-nasal drip where all that congestion in your nose is going into your airway, it irritates your airway, whereas this virus appears to preferentially attack cells in the lower respiratory tract. And that is, of course, why people are susceptible to pneumonias, secondary bacterial infections. And that's where I, you know, selfishly, and I haven't, I haven't publicly stated this, but I'm reading a lot of articles because selfishly, I'm interested, again, purely selfishly, I'm interested in, in three things right now. From my family, it's the effect on pregnant women because Paris is pregnant and right about at that time of viability where she's kind of 27, 28 weeks beyond viability, but just, it's a, you know, it's a critical time. So I've been looking for any data on that. And it seems to be pretty positive that pregnant women may not be at increased risk or at risk for untoward outcomes, but with kids, okay. But with infants, how does that all work? And, and as far as a pregnant woman with a virus, what could happen to the unborn child? That all seems to be relatively good news so far. Correct me if I'm wrong. But for people with underlying lung disease, it is something to think about. So if you are someone who is an asthmatic, I know for me, you know this from when we lived together for forever. If I get an, a common cold, it knocks me out because that post-nasal drip gets in my lungs, irritates my airways. You know, I'm on nasal steroids, I'm on inhaled steroids. And I start thinking about who are these 20, 30, 40 somethings who are ending up intubated in the ICU, some of whom have died. And I'm wondering, are these people, because we don't know right now, right? I mean, I, I don't know. Are these people who had underlying lung issues like asthma or some sort of immunology that did not allow them to clear this virus? It's... <clears throat> But the reality is you get a little more selfish, if you will, and think about, well, how, how could this affect me when you learn more about it, as opposed to the initial response of, you know what, it's 98 to 99% of people are going to be fine. It's just, it's not that, it's not that simple. Um, it's just not. Yeah. Your comments speak to two different things here. Uh, the first of which is this this uncertainty element. And I mean, we're all human beings. Like this is, it's tough when we can't understand something and, and there's a possibility that it's really bad or not so bad. And it's somewhere between the two, 
but that's a pretty wide confidence interval. And, and we're, none of us are okay with that. And uncertainty just eats away at us. And it's probably what's driving us to digest just article after article, moment to moment. And, uh, and, and it changes every single day. I mean, I'll tell you as a, as an ER doc, I'm getting emails from our clinical operations group every day, changing our approach to, to patients coming to the emergency department or calling into our telemedicine service. And, uh, again, it's, it's enough to make your head spin, but you, you have to be willing to adapt and to change your viewpoint based on a barrage of, of new information. But uncertainty is extraordinarily stressful and, uh, and I think it's, it's wearing all of our, our resiliency down. And so that's, that's so, a, so let's go positive for a minute. I, the way I see it right now, here are the positives in my mind. I, I've been very open in terms of telling people, I think that the, our government response was a little bit slow. I think we, we should have been gearing up weeks and weeks and weeks ago for this, given what we've seen across the world. And I think a lot of governments couldn't predict this. So I don't blame any one individual, but I do think that one of the positive developments is testing will become more ubiquitous within a week or so, uh, just in time, probably a little late, definitely a little late because testing just hasn't been done in most communities. And you mentioned in your community that there are even some mobile testing sites. The more we get those out there, they've been very effective in South Korea. That is all very positive. But my one concern right now is I haven't heard enough about surge capacity. So it's fine to test more people, but the reality is where most of these tests are going to be positive for people who are just going to go home and self-isolate, which to some extent we should all be doing a, a better job of than normal. But unless <laughs> this increased testing is accompanied by every single hospital having a, a policy in place to deal with surge capacity, it doesn't matter. My fear right now is that I'm looking at cities that are very close to my heart and my, even my hometown of Nashville where you know, you look at Nashville and Obviously, each hospital is putting in their own policy, some better than others, all of them right now already running thin on resources. So you go into the hospital now, it's already very likely to have a waiting room full of people. A lot of hospitals are, are creating separate areas where people with respiratory symptoms come. I like all of that. But Jeff, this hasn't even hit yet. And so if we're already stressing our system that's to me, that's what I wanted to hear last Friday. That's what I'm hoping to hear more of this week is I want to start hearing about what's going to happen when the surge hits, whether it's Nashville, whether it's New York City. If it happens in multiple cities at once, what are we going to do? What happens? I want to, if I want to shut you down for a second because I'm pretty sure you prefaced this latest portion of our conversation with, I'm going to go positive. Um, you said more testing. More testing. And so without testing, you can't, the thing is, that is the, the first step is testing. Cause if you don't know what you're treating, you may not treat it the right way. So testing is the, you do have to have testing everywhere. And that was my positive. And oh, the other positive, I, I've already mentioned this. It is true that most people, you know, it's the world is not going to come to an end here. Not even close. It's really more a question of how many deaths are we going to be able to prevent? And I thought about this morning. I was, 
I was cooking up some, uh, some pancakes for my kids and, and, and I'm terrible at it. And I'm pretty sure I set them on fire. At least they were smoking a little bit. And so, you know, that was my opportunity to grab the fire extinguisher and like, just let loose on it. Okay. That would be a bit of an overreaction. But if I hadn't noticed and the kitchen's caught on fire, well, guess what? The fire extinguisher is not going to work. All right. So, so our response in something like this needs to be the fire extinguisher on the smoking pancake. All right. I'm not saying that we're just dealing with the smoking pancake. It's probably a much bigger issue right now, but we do need to be more aggressive in, in, in our approach to this. So and there are a lot of analogies, but how, how's this for another analogy? You know what? I, I thought very, I thought very strongly of my analogy. It was a, it was a it, solid analogy. It was analogy. beautiful, always is. And I, Hey, I admit you, you know, you're a smart kid. I wouldn't have you uh, talking to me right now if you weren't, but because of the overreaction element, I, I think of it more in terms of, <clears throat> I heard someone last night, they, they said, look, everyone is being so alarmist here. 98 to 99% of people are going to be fine. Well, Again, let's just say, let's just say that 1% of people die from this. We don't know. Could be way less. We don't know. Could end up being more. We no one really knows. But if you if you think of it in those terms and you go get on the roadway right now and in one mile you pass 100 cars, would would you would it be okay for you to slam into one of those cars and kill that person and be like, you know what, it's not a big deal. The other 99 cars are fine. And then we haven't talked about is the older adults, you know, a 10 to 15% case fatality rate in the older adults, 18% we think in those over 80 years of age. I mean, this is 18% more, 18% mortality rate. Yeah, there's, there's, these are all best guesses. This is coming out of the literature from, from China. But the idea here is that, is that we don't know, but whatever numbers, numbers they are at a population level, they are significant and we should be terrified about it. But I want to get positive for just a second here. Okay. And you're going to see this in communities around the, around the country, but, uh, but you're asking like, what are the hospitals doing for surge capacity? Well, if you think about it, you know, they're, they're doing what they can, opening beds that maybe weren't open before. Uh, they are canceling elective procedures and surgeries in order to improve their capacity. So, you know, if they're taking it seriously, they're taking those measures and they're working pretty darn hard. And, and man, my, my hat's off to, to all the people in operations and all the nurses, the techs, uh, the respiratory therapists, the people on the front lines of this, in addition to the, the doctor providers. Uh, in addition you know, there's this really cool thing called technology and you see telemedicine, both hospital-based telemedicine programs as well as commercial programs that I think could have a significant role to play in all of this. Uh, patients who are freaked out are starting to develop symptoms who aren't, you know, really critically ill can call in and have a conversation with somebody where face-to-face they can assess someone's breathing status their ability to form sentences, you know, has their coloration, what are their risk factors? And they can make that determination of whether there's someone who does need to visit one of those drive-through testing sites, or do they need to go straight to the emergency department? So, you know, I agree. Telemedicine, telemedicine is well, and it's perfect for the worried well or the worried with mild symptoms. And we talked about this last night as well in these communities where you can engage in telemedicine and then you also have these mobile testing areas, what a great way to say, look, I'm worried about you via a telemedicine consultation, whether it be with your own doctor or a known telemedicine platform, or I know your health system has their own telemedicine platform. And then 
if they're if if the healthcare provider interacting with you says this could very well be coronavirus, there's a mobile testing unit five miles down the road. Go go get it done. And as we increase the rapidity of the results, then people can obviously self-isolate, monitor, and then worst case scenario, hopefully we'll get to a point very soon where we know if you're positive and you have bad symptoms, you know where to go so that you don't, no one should be rolling into the emergency department right now without knowledge of the procedures in place. If you think you have coronavirus and you, you should go to the ER, but a lot of ERs now have separate areas. You don't want to just run into the ER waiting room, coughing, and <laughs> spread potentially spread the virus, and then raise your hand and say, "Hey, by the way, I, I have a positive coronavirus via telemedicine um, and the mobile unit, and 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 now I'm here to to see the doctor in person." And and that gets back to infrastructure. But I can't. You know me. I was an early adopter of telemedicine. I mean, I. I was on the advisory board of one of the very first telemedicine companies because I felt it was its potential for chronic disease management huge. But in this case, sometimes all people need is someone to talk to, to help them delineate whether this is serious or not serious. So, so I agree with you to those of whom it's available. I mean, it's there's still a lot of a lot of things at play here, Jeff. That- you know, we take for granted that uh, that we have you know great health insurance and we have access to primary docs and specialists. But the reality is, there's a lot of folks in this country that don't. In in times like this, where the urgent care or the emergency departments is not as accessible, or they're putting themselves at risk even going there. This won't be the last time that we're dealing with some sort of bug that's traveling around our globe. Um, these are lessons learned that hopefully will pay off in, in the future as well. And uh, I just I hope that all of our memories are very long about this and uh, and that we're able to 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 learn from some of the mistakes we made earlier in the process. So we're doing a much better job later in it. Well, and I agree. I think long term, this ends up being a blessing in disguise if we handle it appropriately, because we've felt fairly isolated here from things such as Ebola. I mean, you tell me how we would react as a country if Ebola made it to our shores. There would be mass hysteria. Well, if this lesson or these lessons we've learned from coronavirus have taught us anything up until this point, it's that we have to be prepared at the drop of a pen to respond to these things. The mortality rate from SIRS and MARS were so much higher, which of course... If there's a silver lining there, it's that if a virus kills its host, the virus doesn't have the ability to spread. And I know that's awful, but that's why a lot of times those viruses don't make it from their hotspot to the shores of our country and others. So there's so much to learn here, but it's almost like this virus checks all the boxes. It's not overly mortal, or the mortality is not overly high. So it's able to, uh, when a virus kills off its host, it's a stupid virus. That's the thing people need to start thinking about. If you're a virus and you need humans to live in this situation, if you kill your host, you're an idiot. <laughs> what you want to do is you want your, you know, you want to infect your host and then you want to find another host and you want to just jump from one host to the next and just spread. So that's why I think this novel coronavirus is so fascinating. And if you can call a virus smart, this one seems pretty brilliant. 
Uh, it's incredibly uh, contagious. It appears to be aerosolized as well as to live on surfaces up to three days, all these things. But I think you're right from a positive perspective. I think we're learning as we go. And I do think the response, I actually, I'm going to be optimistic here and say that I I think that we are going to see the country come together cohesively, especially if these case numbers rise. Right now, I think there's st- it's spring break. People are, uh, what do people do when they're stressed out? They, they tend to ironically want to congregate. So there are still a lot of people out there out going to, quite frankly, clubs and bars. And um, I, I think that if we see this getting worse, our country will very quickly go into mitigation mode. And, and that's one last thing I want to talk with you about. This is fascinating to me. I think it's worth the conversation. Everyone thinks and assumes that severe containment and quarantines are the way to go. I disagree with that. Interestingly, with a virus like this, it's not like it's just going to disappear if we all lock ourselves in our home and never leave. I mean, if every single person in the entire world did that, maybe. But this virus is going to spread, right? The question is how fast. And getting back to mitigation, if we all engage in our own, play our own part, you slow the rate at which people are becoming infected. You take a virus that isn't overly deadly and you spread it out over time and our healthcare system never becomes overwhelmed, then no one who should, shouldn't die will die. I mean, here's the deal. People die every single day in America and they die from things that are potentially preventable, but also sometimes, you know what? People get a, a strep pneumonia infection and they die no matter what, right? You use all the right antibiotics. You, you, you provide all the life-saving Sometimes, no matter what, every day in this world, thousands of people will die from infections. So you're not going to get that to zero. That, that shouldn't be the goal. But if we can flatten this out and spread out the infections, then no one has to die unnecessarily. And, and, and that may be incredibly um, morbid to think of it in those terms, but that's I mean, that is life. No no one's going to live forever. And this virus will kill more people. It's just what is the smallest number of people that we can limit that to? And to me, this mitigation concept that they've used, I know, in in South Korea, it's been really effective at flattening this curve. Yeah. You know, people always ask, what can I do? Like as an individual, you know, obviously, if you're in the healthcare profession, you already know what you're going to do. You're showing up for your shift and you're taking care of patients. But if you're not in healthcare, what can I do on an individual basis? And it's relatively straightforward. Avoid doing things that encourage the spread of this disease. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to get it or your friends aren't going to get it. And if you do get it, you're probably going to be okay. Um, again, there are risk factors, you know, the age, immunosuppression, lung disease like asthma, emphysema, COPD, things like that. Those are worrisome, right? But but what can you do on an individual individual basis? You can practice things that are recommended, such as social distancing. And by doing that, those number of cases aren't going to just dramatically increase. Um, so, so I'm totally with you on this. We can do our part by trying to slow the spread with the understanding that it's not going to abruptly stop it. But by slowing it, 
then the hospitals will continue to have capability of taking care of the patients they need to. And, uh, and one of the ways is to sort of be aware. So keep reading, keep talking to folks. And then if you do get sick, that's your opportunity to reach out to the health authorities without running into a situation like an ER or an urgent care. Uh, you can find out whether you're someone who does need testing, first of all, and then also if you're someone who needs some sort of treatment. All right. And uh, right now we're trying to limit the, quote, treatment to those who are toxic. They're very, very ill. All right. If you are mildly ill and you just feel like you have a cold virus, that's the time to like bunker up at home. Turn on your turn on your favorite streaming Netflix, service, baby. Read read some books. We can read books. It's amazing. It's the first time. Like the thought of actually having a physical book in your hand. Read it. Read the books or listen to a book on tape. Spend time with with the family, ideally with a mask over your face. But uh, but the key here is is that you're not spreading the virus. You're you're oh, doing I, your part to try to limit its spread. I would actually I I would I would say that if you are positive. And you have a bigger family, for the most part, you probably should do the Netflix binge in your own room. Have a, you know, I don't know that you want to be hanging out with the whole family for for fourteen days because if you do that, I think unless as a family collectively you're like, yep, we all got it. We're gonna, we're going to hang out together. I think, I mean, that's the part that's hard. Is same with flu, right? If someone gets flu, realistically, you're like, all right. Just as much as you can, um, you know, try to isolate yourself from even members of your family. Certainly if, if you're, you're living with someone who is at higher risk and it's, but still, you still have to eat, you still have to, you know, you still have to interact and that's okay. I think we can agree here that there are way more unknowns than there are knowns. And, and so, you know, yes, I'm encouraging folks if they're getting sick, if they have questions, reach out to their healthcare, you know, provider. Uh, but uh, be okay with a lot of I don't knows, um, and that's and that's what I can offer right now. There's a lot of of I don't knows, but but know that that we're taking this seriously. We care, uh, but we don't have answers to everything. And so, you know, we're talking case fatality rates. We're like it could be 025 percent to three percent. Uh, we really don't know. Um, we're giving big ranges for the gravity of this, uh, but know that in these kind of days, these times, we need to err on the side of caution. And that's why it sounds hyperbolic. Um, we sound alarmist, um, but but we really believe there's potential for this to be a, a big deal. Likewise, hey. if we're trying to give out information, we don't know everything, and we're gonna we're gonna figure it out as we go along. But but as folks that are digesting information from the providers, be okay with with I don't know. Well, and let me add, Jeff, that frontline providers deserve so much applause right now across the world. The thing that I would also add, though, is things are changing so quickly that this is a rare case where, you know, for the most part, I advise people go talk to your doctor. And certainly that always applies, but this is a rare time where I encourage people to think like an ER doctor. And what do we do, Jeff? As an ER doctor, we're constantly reading. We need to educate and also mainly educate those who think this is some, some big hoax. If it turns out to not be a big deal, it's not because it was a hoax. It's because we collectively took action. Jeff Hayden, one of the smartest guys I know. 
been been a good friend of mine since a uh, little story before I let Jeff go. So I was driving to Vanderbilt from the University of Virginia School of Medicine. And Jeff was already in Nashville and he had settled in a year prior. No, he'd been there about maybe six months. And in, I don't know if it was, it was it Crossville or Cookville. I can't even remember because it was so crazy, but in Cookville, which was about an hour, we were about an hour, hour and a half to the east of Nashville, a storm came up and I was run over by a semi truck. Luckily I was in an SUV. And so my, just the front hood of the car got stuck under the truck and got, I I mean, the, the roads were ice and I got thrown off into the ditch. Car was totaled. I was fine, but I was in the middle of a ditch on I 40, 90 miles from where I was headed for an interview for my residency position in emergency medicine. And Jeff and I, knew each other, but not well. So I call up Jeff and Jeff gets in his two wheel drive car and drives 90 miles on icy roads and picks me up at a random truck stop at a random exit in the middle of Tennessee on this crazy night that was just so the roads were so there were, there were accidents everywhere. During my accident, I saw five other accidents while I was down in the ditch. It was that kind of night He drove me back to Nashville, put me up that night. I woke up the next morning, didn't know what my future was going to be. I go to the Vanderbilt emergency department, go do my interviews. And my first interview, I, I had, I I, literally, what I took for my car was I took my suit that I brought for my interview and my overnight bag. And I will never forget being in my first interview. And I looked down in my breast pocket and all of this glass comes out. (laughs) And it became, my point is more so that the kindness that you showed me back then and everyone there at the, at the Vanderbilt emergency department, where I ended up obviously coming for residency and stayed for many years as an attending, it all like that, that is what started my life as I now know it. And what's crazy is number one, thank you for doing that. Cause you didn't know me that well. Now we're best of friends. I mean, we are, we're like brothers not just in medicine, but in life. But if, if you hadn't come to pick me up, I would not have, I realistically wouldn't have even come for my interview. I don't know what I would have done because I didn't know anyone else in Nashville. And now Nashville's home and I've been there for so many years. I mean, heck, it's been almost two decades. And that was my, that was my first trip to Nashville. And I don't know that I've ever told you, thank you, man. I mean, that was, that was, uh, that was a pretty selfless thing. So I, the biggest lesson from that story is that I'm a much better friend than you are. <laughs> but uh, but out, out, outside of that, that is true. Life is uh, serendipitous, and uh, no doubt the Vanderbilt emergency departments benefited from from having you part part of it for a good good while. Took care of a lot of patients. Um, I think you did a pretty good job of caring for your patients, and. Uh, and well, I know, I know, good. I know you are sorely missed there, probably me less so, but, uh, but it's a pretty special place and, and yeah, it's been a, a funny journey, but you know, glad to, uh, glad to be where we are right now. We've got some wonderful families, people that we're going to be looking after, um, that we're worried about. And I know everybody else that listens to this is probably a little bit worried about their own families, but, uh, but no, we're all in the same boat and we're, we're looking out for you. 
Hey, can we, can I tell one more story? Oh no, this is, this is going to get ugly. I know. Am I allowed to? Yeah, yeah, please, please. All right. So what people may, may not know also about me is that, um, although Jeff wasn't there that fateful night, but it was Friday night, end of an ER shift. And, uh, one of our mutual friends, Dr. Ben Heverin, myself and a number of other ER staff left the ER, went to go have dinner. And that was the night where I was approached by a casting director for The Bachelor. Jeff, at the time, was my roommate. We lived together. And he can, he can attest that it was a chaotic time in life. So within what, Jeff? Maybe a month, I was on a plane to Paris. And, and you, you and Nala, everyone knows my, my, my late dog, Nala. You and Nala sat there at the curb and were like, what is going on? But, but you, everyone at Vanderbilt after this all went down, like, you have to go, you have to do this. So Jeff was there with me during that entire journey. Jeff, you tell the story because the bachelor may not have worked out for me, but I've never told this story publicly, but I'm doing it, Jeff. And don't hate me. Don't hate, don't hate me. The bachelor may not have led to a marriage for me, but it led to the marriage of my roommate, Dr. Jeff Hayden, who, who, who we're talking to right now. Jeff? I, I trust that all of this will be fully edited out. But this is true to those who are listening to this portion of the podcast. Um, my now wife, uh, on a bet, approached Travis, and uh, and thankfully he was being inundated with with other solicitations. And instead, uh, I had an opportunity to talk with her. And uh, many many years later, a four year old, a five year old, and, <laughs> and marital bliss. I guess it turns out that that I'm the one who's benefited from this relationship. But uh, so who's the better? So who's the better friend? Who's the better friend? Take it back. You you may have picked me up on the roadside on I-40. I'm not in, I'm not <laughs> entirely sure that you were you were the prime mover, but I have to give you credit. So yeah, thank what? you, Travis. I thank you for my wife. Oh come on now. Now, Jeff, man, it's uh, it's it's been an honor and a privilege to uh, to not only be your friend, but you're you know you're one of the things I love about you and why I wanted to to go ahead and do this after our conversation yesterday is that you're you're committed to your craft, and if I've ever met one person in medicine who is more committed than you, it was during my sleep. So um, you're you just keep up what you're doing and keep Philadelphia safe. Tell uh, Mary and the kids hello. You are the man. All right. Thanks, Travis. Have a good one.